Morning, everyone. Um, <clears throat> it's good to see you all this morning. I uh, want us. Um, well, let's open in prayer first, and then we're going to turn to our um, scripture for the day. Pray with me, if you will. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're grateful for Sunday morning, the ability to worship you freely in spirit and in truth. Lord, I pray you be present among us, that you would draw us to yourself and to one another, and more deeply into your word. Lord, we look to you as our Savior, and we trust in you. We know you are faithful to us, you have been faithful, and we would believe your promises when you say you will be faithful, Lord. Forgive us of our sins. Reconcile us, and may we be an image of reconciliation to a broken world that isn't sure that it has a Savior, but it could if it finds it. In your sense, then we pray, amen. Please turn your Bibles to Psalm 46, which we were... There. <clears throat> I want to preach this morning on God is our refuge and our strength, which is a word that is a comfort to me. I think it might be a comfort to many of us during uncertain and tumultuous times. Begin at the beginning of the psalm. Frequently, psalms have a kind of uh, prefatory matter, just some little details about it. Um, sort of interesting. If you look, it says, To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. Um, we don't know very much about the musical notations that begin the psalms. Um, there's lots of terminology around these things. And uh, different scholars have guesses, but they're just guesses. We don't know. And you can see, uh, for example, in 46, after you'd have these breaks where selah is there. We don't know what selah means. Maybe that means a pause. Maybe it means there's a break from the singing while there's some instrumental portion will happen. Or maybe it's like our word refrain. Like if you see seen the refrain, you kind of like this is a set piece that we'd all go sing together. Uh, we don't know. And um, But we can tell this is like... The psalms are. This is meant for worship. It's meant for music. It is meant for praise and for singing. So it's to the choir master. So there's some master of the choir who would be um, directing in uh, Psalm 46. And it says, um, uh, well, let's go here. So you have this note of the sons of Korah, whatever that means. So if, um, if you'd like, I'll, if, I'm going to turn briefly to First Chronicles 6. Get maybe a couple of hints at possibly what this means. First Chronicles six, um, starting at verse thirty-one. I'll, I'll read a couple of verses in here. Verse thirty-one says, "These are the men whom David put in charge of the service of song in the house of the Lord after the ark rested there." And so David put people in charge. The ark is in Jerusalem. We have to. We're having more formal worship. And there's a list of names. I won't read them all. Verse thirty-three says, "These are the men who served and their sons." And then it lists them. And if you go down to verse 37, it says, Son of Tahath, son of Asir, son of Abiasaph, son of Korah. Of course, that's what it says here. 
in, in, in this passage too. Um, <clears throat> this seems, uh, Sons of Korah also mentioned in other psalms like the beginning of Psalm 42, so they show up. This apparently is not a reference to um, a story, if you're familiar with it, from number 16 of the rebellion of Korah, the Korah's rebellion. Um, these may be the same people, but in, uh, that's kind of a separate subject. But uh, that, that's, it seems to be a reference to maybe they have a style of music that they would write in or uh, a way of performing, and that's what the notation indicates what you're supposed to do for this, for this psalm, which we can't do because we don't have that music or that note. It says, according to Alamoth, what is that? Uh, well, um, if you turn to First Chronicles again, chapter 15, we get a little reference to it. Once again, verse 16, David also commanded the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their brothers as the singers who should play loudly on musical instruments, on harps and lyres and cymbals to raise sounds of joy. Down to verse 20, Zechariah, Aziel, Shemiramoth, have these names, were to play harps according to Alamoth. So, so if you know what that means, you can tell me afterwards what that means. I'm very interested to hear. Uh, it does say it's a song which may be obvious, although not all the psalms, psalms have that notation that it's a song. Psalm 30 is another one that is referred to as a song. Does that mean the others aren't? Is that a special kind of song? We don't know. So we're doing our best. We're doing our best. But um, some things get lost over time. And some details of past civilizations don't stay true. And the music of the Hebrews is not something that we have preserved. So let's get into the text itself, because we can actually maybe have some understanding of that. Psalm 46, the first seven verses tell of a great disruption, something like an immense earthquake, whether this is literal or metaphorical, we'll investigate in a minute, and then speaks of what God is doing amidst this great turmoil. So I'll start us in verse 1, which says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. God is our refuge and strength. Refuge and strength. This is actually a very familiar pairing in the Bible, but it's an interesting one. If you consider it. How can God be our, both our refuge and our strength? It might seem, on reflection, these could be considered opposites in a certain kind of way. God is our refuge, a place we escape to. We hide. He protects us from the danger, from the storm, from the threat. Where if God is our strength, maybe, I mean, that could be seen as Encouraging our boldness, maybe actually being with us when we confront the opposition, as also sometimes happens in Scripture. Is another way of putting this: Is God our offense or our defense? <laughs> you know, is He our refuge or our strength? Well, we're both, is what it says. And certainly, there is plenty of Scripture of God doing both, preserving the weak and hiding them. You know, think of like Noah and family in the ark amidst the flood, or something like that, being a refuge. In danger, but also emboldening the faithful to go out, to speak strongly, to act strongly, even to fight and to draw their sword at times. <clears throat> One possibility is that refuge and strength might be coordinate ideas. Like it might be kind of two words describing not separate things, but the same thing. So you could render, for example, the Hebrew and English as God is a refuge of strength. A refuge of something like that, a refuge of strength. God would be, in this case, a refuge like a fortified tower in a city. So I'll give you an example 
of this in Judges chapter 9. Judges chapter 9, I'll read it to you, starting in verse 50. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. Verse 51. But there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in, and they went up to the roof of the tower. So in this example, we actually have within the city a tower. Who knows what this is? Stone probably, some strong substance. It's of some height where people can get in it and look out, get a sense of their surroundings, so that even if you take the city... You may not have yet taken the city because people have retreated into this fortified place within the city, a stronghold, a tower, a fortress. And so you have to break that or you haven't actually taken, uh, taken it yet. And that's possibly what's being said here too. God is our stronghold in the city. God is, it says, a very present help in trouble. He is close at hand. He's in our midst In disaster, our fears will tell us that God is far from us. He is away. He's looking the other direction. He may not know what we're going through. He may not care that much. It does not feel when terror is striking you. It does not feel that God is present. But the psalm insists it's so. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. The image could be a fortified tower amidst a besieged city. It's troubled times, and yet God is there present in our midst. Such a defense, such a fallback refuge would also, do you see, encourage boldness. I mean, isn't that how it would be? Imagine we're having a literal war and someone is besieging your city. But if you have a tower, you're actually encouraged to be bolder because you know you have a safe fallback position if you needed it. So you can push, you can be bold, and you can attack in the ways you need to because when it comes to it, you have a safe place. Having a sure refuge is a source of strength to warriors when threats surround and grow. You may be bold in your obedience since he is present to help us. The psalm does not deny that we are amidst trouble, but it assures that God is present to us in the trouble. Reading verses 2 and 3. Therefore, since God is our refuge and strength and very present, therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. So we will not fear whatever the threat. God is present, and he's a help. He's a refuge and a strength. Verse 2 Though the earth gives way, the earth may give way. It may give way. This is not something we think on very much, not something we dwell on. There is no guarantees of earthly permanence. In disaster, things may tremble that you don't expect to tremble. There are things in this world that are so seemingly permanent that we do not imagine we could ever lose them. Surely they will always be here. Yet nevertheless, the earth may give way. We do not fear, though mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, 
the depth of the sea, the center, the middle of the sea, the bottoms of the ocean. The mountains completely upended and dropped to that they disappear into the you know, impenetrable depths or you know, that we can't see the bottom of. Even though it's a thing of immense strength and size, it can be gone. It was a permanent, it was a regular feature and fixture of your horizon. That's what a mountain is. People have lived around mountains for extended period of time. You get used to it, so I'm told. I've not lived extended period of times in mountainous area. People say, like, you always orient yourself by it. Like, oh, I know what direction that is because of where the mountains are. Wherever you are in the city, you've gone to a new part of town you've never been. But you know where you are. The mountains are there. You almost feel like something's over there kind of watching you and anchoring you. It orients you to the world to have a mountain. And yet, this immense permanent mass may be wiped out suddenly, dramatically, utterly. And we cry, wait, that too is gone? That too is gone? We know some things must disappear. Some things must go away. We know that. Maybe even we ourselves. But not this. Not the mountain. The mountain is the kind of things that is so continuous that it is assumed rather than questioned. Of course, that will be there. If you had a feature of your life that was so constant and so present that you scarcely even imagined that it could be removed or undone, is there a person you've depended on, relied on like a mountain, You've leaned on this person. You've rested on this person. Is there a feature of your society or an institution that you knew must always be there? Well, it had always been there, so of course it will always be there. Certainly in your experience. Is there a, a moral standard that stood unquestioned for you your entire life? You didn't even feel the need to test the boundaries. And it shocks you to think that anybody would. Something that you could say even to your enemies, even somebody you dislike and they dislike you and you're having an argument, you could say, you know, you and I, we've had our differences, but we can both agree that this is true. And we can both agree that this is morally right. Well, where are we now? We have relied on this mountain. But this mountain proves impermanent. It has sunken. It has diminished. It has moved to the heart of the scene. Verse 3. But we do not fear, even though the sea, the threat of chaos, roars and foams. Wicked degeneracy, dissolution, madness threatens. It growls at us. It swamps on every side. The Israelites, you see, were not a seafaring people. The seas are terrifying to them. They are chaotic. And very often, water in the Bible is an image of the unexpected, of danger, of chaos, and of death. There are seafaring peoples, like the ancient Greeks, who you know, take their ships across the water. The Israelites didn't feel this way. You know, the most you would get among the Israelites is like, uh, you know, fishermen with their boats on the Sea of Galilee, that kind of thing. And even then, you can see how scared they get when a storm shows up. 
Water is often chaos and death in Scripture. So think of the great flood. Or perhaps the Red Sea. Which especially with Pharaoh coming one way, the Israelites are trapped between the waters, which are death, and the Pharaoh, which is death. And now what will happen to us? Or the playground of the Leviathan, who romps and splashes and is bigger than we are, and we could barely understand him. We're terrified of him in some sense. Or Jonah, swallowed and pulled to the depths. And he says that he's died. Yet God parts the waters. He walks on the waters. He stills the storm. He redeems his chosen one. The roaring and foaming of the sea may angrily threaten us, as the wicked do. This is Isaiah 57, verses 19 through 21. Here's this. The passage says, Peace, peace to the far and the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. In the face of this chaotic anger, the formerly strong becomes weak and trembling, unstable, fearful, even cowardly. Verse 3, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Where are our mountains now? The supposedly permanent has proved its impermanence and declares, this can't be happening to me. How can we be succumbing to this? How can we be vulnerable? Even so, the people of God do not fear, even if the mountains tremble. Our surety is stronger and deeper and more everlasting than mere mountains. Jesus says this. Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says, will come to pass. It will be done for him. Mark eleven twenty two through 23. What mountains will be moved before our eyes? What mountains, supposed refuges, now proven false, may we even have a hand in throwing into the sea, as Christ says? Back to Psalm 46, verse 4. We have a new water image introduced in verse 4. It says this, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Consider the difference between the river and the chaotic sea here in this psalm. Who knows the origins of the raging and chaotic sea? Where does it come from? What does it want? But the river is stable. It's made its course, and it's carved out the earth, and it has its regularity. It has a steady location. It gives its streams to make Jerusalem glad and quench its thirst. 
Jerusalem, the city of God, the habitation of the Most High, where the the temple is. This water, this river, is controlled and stable and nourishing and refreshing. The sea is a threat to the mountains. Yet, the river and Mount Zion cohabitate. It is as if what should be united in God, the mountain and the waters, have been split apart and kind of chaotically fight each other. But here, in verse 4, they live as they ought to live. The lion laying down with the lamb, so to speak. I'm going to read a few prophecies from the Old Testament that have some resonance with some images in this psalm, for example. Let's start with Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah 14, start in verse 3. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations, as when he fights on a day of battle. Verse 4. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall shall move northward, and the other half southward. Skip down to verse 8. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea, shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. Jerusalem again. This time, the Mount of Olives is being split. Sounds like a river comes out of it. Of living waters. This is water we can use, that we need, that we crave. Again, I'll point you to Prophet Ezekiel, chapter 47. Ezekiel 47, I'll start reading in verse 1. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple, toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. This is a vision he's having. He's seeing the temple, and water is coming out of it. Verse 2, Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around the outside, the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Where is this water coming from? What's it doing? Skip down to verse 6, halfway through. It says, Then he led me back to the bank of the river. This water grows into a river. It starts to flow out of the temple. Verse 7, As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on one side and on the other. Verse 12, And on the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month. As the water for them flows from the sanctuary, their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. A river flowing from the temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
John 7, 38. Revelation takes up this image too. Turn to the very end of the Bible, Revelation 22. Last chapter. Revelation 22, I'll read the first two verses. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. You see the resonance of the language with the Ezekiel passage? It's not identical, but it's similar. to invoking it. This time, healing of the nations. The kind of worldwide vision. Strange, but interesting. Can there be such a thing as steady, strengthening water amidst all of this chaos? The flooding and roaring of the seas? Can water, holy and orderly, be life to us and not just death. Back in Psalm 46, verse 5. God is in the midst of her. Her, that city, now identified as Jerusalem. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. God is our refuge and strength, very present help in trouble, as was said in verse 1. And this is a different way of making a similar point. God dwells in the midst of the city of his people. The mountains may be moved and move dramatically, but the city of God's people will not be moved. It may be night now and confusion and threats swell like the seas, but God will help his city when morning dawns, as it says in verse 5. God will help her when morning dawns. This is Psalm 30, verse 5. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. There's a few times, actually, where salvation comes for the people of God in the morning. I'll give you just a couple examples. Back again to the Israelites escaping from Egypt and Pharaoh's armies pursue the newly freed slaves that are Israel, even daring to enter into the parted waters after them. And so this is Exodus 14, verses 24 and 25. It says this. In the morning, sorry, in the morning watch, so we have these different watches at the time of the day. In the morning watch, the Lord and the in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And of course, disaster strikes them, and the waters come down upon them. Chaos and death overtakes them. They are not permitted to pass through the way faithlessly. They must follow God through the way that means salvation. But it will be death for the Egyptians. God's judgment takes them. In the morning watch is when this happens. Here's another example. When King Sennacherib of Assyria had Jerusalem surrounded, Jerusalem is a city threatened, hemmed in on every side, rising waters, so to speak. He is certain to destroy this outpost with his overwhelmingly aggressive and violent force. Nothing has been able to stop him. He will be victorious here as he has to countless other cities before. The Lord says this, quote, For I will defend this city to save it. 
for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. 2 Kings 19, 34-35. The nations may threaten. The enemies of the people of God may rise and strengthen and howl. But salvation and joy for the redeemed comes in the morning. Verse 6. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. This verse identifies the threat of the chaotic seas more explicitly with the threat of the nations. This is a metaphor. This is poetry going on. The nations rage even as the waters roar and foam. But then God sends forth his voice to make the fearsome resistance melt. At his word, kingdoms totter, and the earth itself may dissolve. Which is interesting to me about this psalm, how this is done, because what was a threat before the dissolution of the earth, right? It's a source of potential fear that the mountains are being undone, the earth is going... Well, that now is a means to our salvation. Is the earth melting before our eyes? It is possible that God himself commands it. The earth which is, I think, both the earth as a physical object, like the planet, the dirt, the earth, and earth as the people who inhabit it, for God so loved the world, the people of earth. Both, or neither, if you want to put this up, neither are stronger or more formidable than their creator. Verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The Lord of hosts. You know this phrase, Lord of hosts, frequently repeated in the Bible. This, is, this means the Lord of the armies of heaven. These are the hosts of heaven. This is a military metaphor. He has soldiers. He is a commander in this passage, a commander of armies. God is at war against the wickedness of the nations, and he will win quite decisively. Whatever international political forces may plan... They will not prevail against the purpose and strength of God. In verse 7, you see the fortress image is repeated again. The God of Jacob is our fortress. There is no fortress like our Savior, who is powerful and fearsome to his foes. Verse 8, you might have a break there, possibly, in your uh, translation of the psalm. Verse 8 transitions. It's a continual in a certain sense. It, It concentrates more explicitly on the conflict with the nations. We've already seen that in the first verses, kind of moving a little bit away from some of the you know, earthquake, storm, waters language, and now getting a little bit more explicit about the wars against the nations. Verse 8 says this, Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. I find this to be a remarkable verse. God does many works, many works, many kinds of works. He is, uh, he's creative. He creates. He redeems. He's a redemptive in his works. He's healing in his works. He is instructive 
in his works. He teaches us things. In this instance, the works being referred to, works of God, bring desolations on the earth. Desolations. This is a statement that I think should provoke fear and trembling in us to think that a work of God, that we should come and behold, are his bringing desolations upon the earth. Yes, God brings desolations too. He does. And bringing desolations can bring glory to God. We do not hold the power of God lightly, and woe to those who mock it. They will come to realize their error. But God is glorified in redeeming the repentant. And he is glorified in bringing desolations upon the unrepentant. And he gets glory either way. Come, behold the works of the Lord. I almost imagine in that, I mean, like, have the people of God, like, they're, they're huddled up in the fortress. They, they're, 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 they're bracing for the attack. He's like, come on out. Look. Look what I've done. Step out into the light. Survey the surroundings. See that you have been freed. See that you have been redeemed. Verse 9 says this. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear and burns the chariots with fire. God makes wars cease? Maybe this is a surprising statement here. I mean, we've been seeing described the aggressive power of the wicked nations which make even the mountains tremble. Then we see the voice of God going out to melt the earth and bring desolations to the enemies of God. Isn't this participating in wars rather than causing them to cease? I mean, aren't we engaging in wars? What does this mean, make them cease? Well, I suggest this statement makes more sense if you understand the nations of the world to be the raging aggressors bringing the war. It is not the people of God who are initiating the war here. The war has come to their doorstep, which is why they're surrounded and their city is hemmed in. It has come to them. They didn't ask for it. They didn't desire it, but it has come to them. The nations are bringing the war. So therefore, if God stops them and stops their attacks, he stops the wars. He breaks the bow. To break the bow, to shatter the spear, to burn the chariot, these are the aggressors being disarmed. And the fact that it says that God makes wars to cease to the end of the earth suggests to me that God is not merely willing to defend Jerusalem on its front doorstep, but will eliminate threats to his holy people anywhere they may be found on earth. We may have fear of growing or emerging threats far away. God can utterly destroy their power, their violent source of strength. And we need the protection of God for this because we don't see it all. We think we do, we don't. And we do not have the ability that we think we do to stop even what we see. And certainly what we do not see. We need the protection of God. He is our fortress. He is our refuge. The hostile nations do have threatening and advanced weapons. So chariots are mentioned here. Chariots are advanced weaponry in the ancient world. I mean, we think of them as old-fashioned, of course, from our perspective. But they're fast, and they're maneuverable, and they're a way of waging war that Israel itself did not often have access to. There were some times when they had chariots, but not many. And so the wicked coming with chariots, not only are they strong, not only are they aggressive, they've got better weapons than we do. 
but God can shatter and burn them. The seas may remove mountains, but mountains and seas and all the earth melt before the sovereign Lord. Verse 10, a very famous verse, says this. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. God is confident that he will be exalted amongst this situation, which is terrifying and chaotic and violent. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. How do we understand this? One way, I think, to understand this verse is to read these words as God's word to us, his people. So he is telling us that we need to be still. So we're afraid, we're terrified, or we're, maybe we're not terrified yet, but we're kind of potentially, he's like, calm down. You know, like a, a parents assuring children, children during a thunderstorm. Like, Don't worry. I know what you're hearing, I know what you're seeing, I know you're worried. Be still and be calm. But God will break the power of those nations. And he will show us, therefore, that he cares for us. God will triumph and be exalted on the earth. So the threats to us, his people, will be removed. Usually in churches, I think probably, I've heard this interpretation of the verse. We, the people of God, need only to be still and know that he is God. And that might be what this passage means. It may well be what is being said here. Uh, But I also want to offer a, a second reading of these words too which I think also works in, in, the, in the context of this passage. It might be that these words are not being spoken to the people of God. They're being spoken to our enemies who roar and foam and plot and attack. God is confronting the rebellious nations. So be still, roaring waters. Be still, violent. Be still, liars. And rebels, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. They say, we don't want you. We don't believe in you. We resist you and we fight you. He says, you will calm down. And you will bow. Every knee shall bow. You will be quiet. You will be overcome. And you will exalt me. Even if it is not out of delight, but out of terror, you will confess the power of God and come to know it. God is saying to the waters, part, fall, diminish. He breaks their bow. He stops their offense and he quiets their turmoil. After all, think of this. Jesus rebukes the storm. He rebukes the storm in Mark 4, 39. We read this. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace. Be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. Verse 10, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Be still, you shouting, violent, aggressive nations, and know that I am God. I will be exalted by easily overcoming and turning your supposed strength away. Do you rage? Not in the face of the Holy One of Israel, you won't. God is our refuge and strength. God's people will know that strength is our defender. 
The nations, if they do not repent of their hatred of the holy, will know that strength as the bringer of their desolation. Verse 11. Verse 11, you will notice, this is a refrain, maybe, or a petition of verse 7. It's the same, same verse repeated. And it says this, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The God, who is to be exalted among the nations, is uniquely close to us and is our fortress. He has power over all the earth, but somehow he lives with us. He will join the battle and make wars to cease to the end of the earth for his own sake and for ours. I would like to conclude today, if you are willing, I'd like to sing this setting of Psalm 46 again. Um, you should have pull those copies out. You may just sing it a cappella. But having gone through this in, in, in detail again, um, I find these psalms very rich. I find them, they're the kind of thing that you can read very quickly. One time you're like, yeah, I get what's going on, but you like to slow down. I think there's, there's real meat there and power. Sing to me, if you will, the setting of uh, Psalm 46. God is our refuge and our strength, our present help in doubt and pain. Our hearts will never feel dismay. The earth beneath our feet give way. The mountains fall into the sea, and waters fierce and stormy be. The earth shakes at the Swelling tide, the Lord our God is at our side. There is a river flowing grand, whose streams make glad God's holy land. The dwelling of our God most high is steadfast in his dawning light. The nations rage and kingdoms fall. The
Oh. Uh-huh. 